Hey everyone, I'm JK, founder of Four Stripes. We're serving martial arts and jiu-jitsu community in Hong Kong and rest of Asia through unique events, training, and networking opportunities. Jiu-jitsu is our passion, but it's the people that inspire us with their life stories. You'll be the referee. Welcome to the Four Stripes Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Voon Lee. Join me as we explore the growing jiu-jitsu and grappling community in Hong Kong, Asia, and beyond as our guests share their stories, inspirations, and hard-won lessons on how to live an adventurous, authentic, and fulfilling life. Today, my guest is Cole Surchek. Cole is an investor and entrepreneur with a background in private equity and investment management and degrees from MIT and Harvard University. Cole and his wife, Grace, created their health tech startup, DocDoc, after their 90-day-old daughter, was suddenly diagnosed with a rare liver condition that required a transplant. Since that time, DocDoc has grown into Asia's largest doctor discovery and appointment reservation system, empowering thousands of patients to make data-driven healthcare decisions which are safe, transparent, and fair. Prior to DocDoc, Cole was also the co-founder of Epic MMA Club, which at the time of its launch in Hong Kong in 2012, was Asia's largest mixed martial arts training center. Cole has had a long history of jiu-jitsu since discovering the gentle art in the mid-1990s. We talk about his favorite memories along this journey, how to develop mental fortitude and deal with adversity, the challenges of building a martial arts brand in Asia, and his views on the most important values a parent can instill in their kids. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we have Cole Surchek. Welcome uh, to the show. That's right. Thanks, guys. Cole, you've actually had... Uh, a long-standing history with the art of jiu-jitsu, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been in martial arts since uh, five years old, so I'm 43 now. So mm. I've trained martial arts weekly for you know, what is that? 30. I shows up by my math is, but 37 years of my life. And what did you start off with? Uh, I started off with uh, Thai kung fu, mm-hmm. and then I got into Muay Thai, and then I got into uh, uh, Jeet Kune Do. Okay. Uh, and then got into jiu-jitsu. Right. And then kind of did Muay Thai and jiu-jitsu. Well, I think what's interesting is that you started jiu-jitsu at a time, because a lot of people, uh, especially here in Asia, kind of have taken up jiu-jitsu later in their life, in their late 20s or early 30s. You took it up when you were much younger, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when jiu-jitsu itself was also much younger. Yeah, 16. I mean, you guys don't realize how much better it's gotten to learn jiu-jitsu as a non-Brazilian in the last, call it decade, decade, you know, 15, just not even 15 years, just decade. Yeah. Because I remember being a blue belt in the early 90s, and there were no black belts that weren't Brazilian. Yeah. And it wasn't even clear if they were ever going to allow a non-Brazilian to be a black belt. Well, it, like was it wasn't kind even of like they wouldn't even, there were whole sections of knowledge that they just didn't talk about and didn't share. Well, you started almost uh, pre-UFC 1, right? So it would have just right been about viewed UFC one. as a purely Brazilian art form. Oh, it was a mystery thing. So there was this guy named Pedro Sauer who, yeah, I mean, it was before, it was before Hoist Gracie mm-hmm. uh, in UFC 1. And uh, um, uh, this guy, Pedro Sauer, had moved up to Salt Lake. And uh, he started teaching uh, uh, jiu-jitsu. And I'd done a lot of wrestling in high school. Right. And so uh, some, some friends of mine said, let's go check this out. Yeah. And we went in there and it was just, it was just, you, you don't like, you don't realize how effective jujitsu actually is. Um, you forget about it because, you know, when, like when we train jujitsu, we're training with other people that have trained before. 
But when you really train with someone who's never seen the art, mm-hmm. you don't realize how easy it is, yeah. how dominant, dominating and how intimidating it actually is. Yes. Yeah. Um, Did you have that classic kind of come to Jesus moment where you were the wrestler? You came in. Oh yeah, I thought I was. So, like I thought a I was. Tiny like a, guy submit you. And I'm a tough. I'm a tough wrestler <laughs> and a young high school guy. I've been in martial arts forever. Right. Let's see how good this is. And I just got lit up. It was like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, um, Hoyler Gracie, I think, said it really. Said it very well. He said, um, "I'm a shark. This is an ocean, and you don't even know how to swim." Yeah. Absolutely. It was like that. Like it was just, and after that I was, I was hooked. Yeah. I think Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is so much fun. And you know, I, I haven't trained consistently the entire time. Uh, I, I really hurt my back when, as a four stripe blue belt, uh, training under Helson mm-hmm. and, uh, I ruptured my L4, L5 and right. I actually went to, when I went to graduate school, I couldn't sit for a half hour without getting a migraine. Right. So I literally, for the first year of grad school, ended up standing in the back of the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, having to take notes. I couldn't sit down that long. And I thought I'd permanently injured myself. Right. And it was interesting how my body just over time, my, 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 my discs kind of, they, 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 as you get older, your discs naturally compress a little mm-hmm. and that takes off some of the pressure. Mm-hmm. And it was that, and a lot of rehab and, yeah. you know, uh, there was this studio in Singapore five years later called Evolve. Right. And I walked in and I was the first student. Right. And they had just opened up and I was so, I remember walking in there and how skeptical I was. You had, had taken a full break from jujitsu oh, from training? F- at least five years. Did you follow the, uh, the sport at all during that time? I followed, I didn't follow the sport. I followed the UFC. Right. Pretty closely. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, no, even no gi grappling mm-hmm. uh, really, it was just starting to really take off at that point. Yeah. Because um, you know, it was kind of interesting. You told some stories earlier on, we revisited them a little bit, but how you met, like, you know, some fairly interesting early characters. You trained a oh, little bit voice. in Hawaii, Hawaii under Helson, and you met uh, yeah. BJ Penn. Oh, BJ Penn was there, and Salo, and uh, Salo Ribeiro was, was, that was, he was like this young, up and coming black belt superstar. Yeah. And I watched BJ Penn go from white belt. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, Barrett Yoshida. Yes. Who actually, his, you know, went on. He was a real phenom. I trained a lot with Barrett, actually. Uh, he was a it's phenom. A similar age, right? Or maybe even a little bit younger. Is that right? Than my, than, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it was Barrett and it was BJ's brother. Mm-hmm. And it was myself and maybe three or four other guys that were all, that all trained together. Uh, Barrett was clearly the best. Yeah. Um, but the thing about Barrett was it was interesting. So he lived in the gym. And he really, you know... He took the judo, like when you talk to ju- like a, a really good judoka uh, about judo, you'll, they'll say, you know, it takes 10,000 throws mm-hmm. and they'll just practice that same throw over and over and they'll just drill it and drill it and drill it. You don't see that happening as much in jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Barrett was one of those guys that would do that. So he embraced the whole drilling aspect. He would take a, he would take a move. He'd watch it, on, watch a video because this was a time when they would, they weren't really sharing. Right. You know, it wasn't like Helson was, you know, openly sharing all the, his intimate secrets. He'd right. Be, and so he, we the earliest videos, you know, he would watch these videos and, and he would sit in there and he would just drill for six hours, mm. literally six hours. He'd just sit with a couple guys and just drill, 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 drill. Right. And he got phenomenal mm-hmm. really quickly. Yeah. And everyone kind of thought he was the phenom in Hawaii. Right. And then, uh, um, BJ's older brother, uh, you know, he started talking about, Hey, you know, my brother is a really good athlete and he's training and uh, wrestling and I don't remember I was like San, it was like San Diego State or or 
I don't, I don't, it was some state college, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a big wrestling program. Right. And he'd done that. Like, and then he, all of a sudden he was training with health and he came out and he was this really tough white belt. I remember rolling with him. Mm-hmm. And then, um, he came back like three or four months later and he was a blue belt. And basically at that point, nobody in the gym could pass his guard. Mm-hmm. Like it was just kind of mind boggling how quickly he got that good. And this was a gym full of some really good people. And what sort of insight did you have as to how he did it? Was it just that he was just a physically a, phen- a phenom or no, was, was there something about I his mean, learning process? No, nah, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that there was a lot. I actually think that, you know, his brother and I talked about this. I think he, um, I think he could do a move 10 times, 15 yeah. times and just own it. Just develop an intuitive feel. Just owned it. For what it should look like. Just what it, what it should look like, how it fit in, what the timing was. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of jiu-jitsu is actually timing. Yeah. It's that feel of the push and the pull and the weighing and the unweighing. And the and it's that. It was way more important than strength. Mm-hmm. And I think he had an, in, an in, just an, an inherent feel for that. Mm-hmm. That even to this day, I still have absolutely, you know, I still do very poorly. Yeah. You know, I just think he had that. And it's then, an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting contrast, even just in that gym where you had a guy like Barrett Yoshida, who's yeah. basically embraced the idea that you know I need to drill this thousands of times, and once I do that, I've got a master it. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have someone who just just has well, Barrett, this intuition. Uh, Barrett trained jujitsu as hard and as long and as consistent as anybody in the world. Mm. Like that guy was just in the gym always. And and what I understand after I left Hawaii is he didn't stop. Yeah, I mean, he left Helsin. Sure. And he went over and trained with uh, um, Egan and Ensign in Oi. Yes. Um, and uh, but my, my my understanding is he never slowed down. But look at what look look what BJ did. BJ went from no name to this good white belt to this blue belt that was just f- had this phenomenal guard to all of a sudden he's a purple belt and he's he was winning big tournaments in Hawaii even in the open division and and that was there were some really good people in that mm. and then he like a year later was a brown belt and then a year later he got his black belt the day of the Mundials, and he won the tournament. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he was the first American. And so uh, you can get good in jiu-jitsu. There are, but there are a lot of examples of this, actually. I think it took, what was it, Marcelo Garcia, I heard, and I don't remember, remember the exact, but I heard he got his black belt in like three years. I think I also heard Kaya Terra. Kaya Terra also, also got three years. just got it incredibly quickly. Yeah. And so... I, I think some people absorb knowledge faster. Yeah. I don't think there's any, any mystery there. They're just better athletes. They have better timing and they absorb knowledge faster. Yeah. Better neuromuscular monkey see, monkey do. Have you found any particular approach to learning that you think uh, is optimal when it comes to kind of learning jiu-jitsu? Yeah. yeah. I think so. Um, the best inst- I've been really fortunate. I've had some really good instructors. The best instructors start really small with you mm. and they play a really small game with you and they just you know it's uh like we're gonna do close guard two-on-one grip and that's all we're gonna do today for an hour just work on two-on-one two-on-one how do you do two-on-one and and then after you get a little better at that then they move to another piece and another piece and another piece until you get to a position and then they let you just drill that for a while mm-hmm. and play with it mm-hmm. and then they come back to you and they start from that foundation. Like you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to start in some position, and, and then some little game inside that position, mm-hmm. and then build. Yeah, 
right? And just keep coming back to that and going through that strain. If you don't do that, I think jujitsu, it's really easy to develop islands of knowledge. Yeah. Right. And what you want to have is an integrated knowledge graph. And do you feel like that's translated into how you approach learning, I guess, many new subjects that you've obviously encountered different things as an yeah, investor? Yeah, so that's, that, that's interesting. Um, not so much in that regard, but in terms of, in terms of resilience mm. and grit, jujitsu has really helped me. Like I was always kind of a stubborn asshole. Mm-hmm. Like I was kind of born that way. Sure. But my ability to endure pain mm-hmm. and call it normal. Yeah was definitely increased because of jujitsu. You know, like jujitsu, like now someone gets me in the mount and they're really grinding on me. And I'm like, that's kind of normal. You know, I'm not freaked out by it. Sure. And, and so if you notice, if you train a lot of jujitsu, nothing actually, it, it, the, the, the dramatic peaks kind of vanish yeah. in your life. And that's lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. It's never that bad, you know, if that makes any sense. No, it makes a ton of sense. And knowing what I know about you, because you've also done some ultra marathon events yeah. before in the past. So you're the type of personality that kind of seeks out, perhaps, uh, the grind and yeah. Well, it. so okay, that's a different. So, a big part of my life is my wife throwing my ass off a cliff, mm. and then in me building a parachute on the way down. Sure. So the ultra marathons, so that was all her. Oh, she took part in it as well. Uh, yeah, no, didn't just take part in it. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> Here, here's actually where you, you should take a little sidebar and describe a little bit about uh, my <laughs> wife. your wife. So Grace is um, the most honest assessment of her in my relationship is I want to strangle her on a regular basis. And yet, if I was to live a thousand lifetimes, I'd marry the same woman. Sure. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, you're, any high quality marriage is complex. Sure. Like it has to be, right? I don't know how else to describe that, that the nature of that relationship in the, is just complex. And so here's an example of me wanting to strangle my wife and yet loving her to death. So she was on this panel, this kind of woman leadership panel thing. And it was, there was a woman who had done the, Go, the uh, uh, Sahara desert or a uh, Gobi desert um, march. Yeah. It's this 250-kilometer uh, foot race across the Gobi Desert. And, uh, and so Grace was talking about um, her time at... My, my wife went to West Point in the US, United States Military Academy. And, and uh, she, you know, her, big, her sport there was judo, and she was quite accomplished in it. She was a four-time All-American. Yeah, she was, very, yeah she, was, she was accomplished. And, and um, so she was talking about that. That was her speak on the panel. And this other woman was talking about this race. Mm-hmm. And apparently Grace comes home when we're lying in bed and Grace says, Cole, you should have seen this race. You should have heard about it. I mean, it was difficult and she wanted to quit, but she made it through. And at this point, I'm just engaged in my wife and, and, and Grace is like, and you know, I know that if we could make it through a race like that, that that's a good test for us being able to make it through life. And I'm like, honey, yeah, you're right. I hear your point. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm going to bed now, but that was, this is a good talk. And I had no idea, because I'm an outdoorsman. I grew up hiking in Idaho, and so I know a lot about the outdoors. A 250-kilometer foot race across the Gobi Desert is tough. I mean, it's gnarly, right? There's, it's really, like, it's not, yeah. it's, it's, it's clearly people that are doing that are on the spectrum, as we were saying earlier. Well, I think people should also understand that this is not your typical foot race either. This is a self-sufficient foot race. So you yeah. actually have to carry yeah. all your own food. Everything. 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 All your medical equipment. Everything but water. 
Everything but water and a tent. Good. That's right. That's right. So, so uh, the next day, she's still talking about this race. And I'm like, that's really interesting, Grace. You know, uh, you know I'm happy to learn more about it and, and be supportive. And, and so then she, sends, she gets these videos. She calls, sends out National Geographic and on this big expo day on the race. And we're watching it. And there's these big, strong, grown men. And they're sitting on the side crying and giving up. And I'm like, Grace, do you realize how gnarly this is? And she's like, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe it is too gnarly. I'm like, okay, good. So then I'm, a week later, I'm sitting at work, and I get this bill, uh, I learn on my credit card, and she's just spent $10,000 mm-hmm. to enroll us both in the race and pay for it. And, and she just sends me the email of the enrollment, and she doesn't even tell me what it costs, but I get it on my text. And she says, Cole, if we can make it through this, then I think we can get married. Sure. This is a good sign that yeah. we can make it through life together. Some people go, some people who are part of a church go <laughs> to their pastor. <laughs> exactly, and they have exactly, like a yeah. little couples therapy counseling. <laughs> and you guys went for a uh, you know, 250 Kilo- kilometer yeah. march through the desert. So she says to me, you got to get us through this. Sure. Just that's it. You got to get us through us now. We're doing it. You got to get us through it. Yeah. So I totally geek out. Kind of like your uh, your wonderful setup here and on the microphones. I mean, I I'm like I gotta just geek out on everything. So I'm reading everything I can about adventure racing and mm-hmm. and training. And and we go there and we're totally ready. Yeah. And the day before we go, one of the most important things to avoid blisters is having your feet like a baby's butt. There yeah. can be no dry skin. So so you really got to keep your feet real smooth so there's no friction in your socks. So I'm going in a manicure and the the, the woman the woman doing the manicure starts laughing because they've never had a man get a manicure. Or a, not a manicure, a pedicure, pedicure, pedicure. pedicure. And, um, and she's like, we got to do something with your toes. And so we, t- we, we paint my toes like checkered flags, right? That's the, and, and so we get into the race and about day three, I stub my toe on a rock mm. really hard yeah. and my little toe. And I'm just limping into the med tent that night and I take off my shoe and my toe is purple oh, and man. I'm just... And, I, and, and the keep the toenails or no? Well, no, no, they did. It, they, they, those, those take time to come off. Yeah, they don't true. just come off. And no, no, they didn't yank it off. But yeah, and the the the, the um, doctor says the toenails are cute. Yeah, and he said, but <laughs> no, you see, I don't have any toenail polish remover out here in the desert, so I can't tell. And he said, I think you broke your toe. And he said, so I've got good news and bad news. And I go, what's that? And he said, the good news is you're going to be fine. The bad news is it's going to hurt like hell for the rest of the race. Sure. <laughs> and, oh. and I'll never forget the next, when we got on the long day of the race, I'm out there and the date, uh, the first day of the race, we're all sleeping in this tent and all these um, uh, adventure racers are, uh, are, are sitting there talking about, uh, they're all, they've all done like four or five Ironman or other races and we're gracing our feeling really, really uh, undergunned. Or, uh, and sure. they're talking about going on the blub. What's that? You know, you just kind of <laughs> start crying. <laughs> and you just say, he goes, you know, and they're all talking about their different experiences where they've gone on the blub. Yeah. You know, they're in the run of the, 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 the last half of the Ironman run and they just break down yeah. and they're and trying not to quit and they call it the blub. So I'm on my long march and just as the sun's going down, and we still have another six or eight hours of, high, I mean, more than that, we got in at 4 a.m. that day. So, yeah. so we still have a long way to go. And all of a sudden, I start going, 
because I'm not quitting. Yeah. I mean, you'll have to kill me to get me to quit. Yeah. But there I was whimpering and Grace is like, toughen up. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> But, you know, uh, doing it as a couple, I yeah. think, is incredibly difficult. I because uh, <laughs> I did I did the same race as you. I did it in Nepal, but I did it oh. as a team. I did uh, the Nepal race. You did the race in the planet Nepal. Racing in the planet. Nepal. Oh, cool! And uh, what did you think of it? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, be, I, I, I loved it for all the same reasons that you love it now. When you look back, yeah. But when you're doing it, yeah, it's a different thing. Did you go on the blub? So. Every race has got its own um, complications. Yeah. And ours was that by the end of day one, 25% of the camp had caught a viral infection of the stomach. So oh, people were fun. throwing up. People, it was coming up every which way. Oh, I bet and the by camp day was two cute. and day three and day four, by the time it came to day four, about 60% of the camp had it one way or another. And oh, I was so lucky. I bet dehydration was just. So unbelievably hard to keep hydrated in that situation. Well, I was kind of lucky in a way, and I, I caught it day one. So by the end of day one, I kind of basically I threw up everything that I had, and day two I had well, I went on with basically no food in my stomach. So day two was the hardest. But by the time day three came around, I felt like I was getting better. Yeah. The worst parts were the guys who were catching it at the end of at day the long four. Day. Yeah. And then day on the long march, I had a friend who basically went in every single field across Nepal for, yeah, maybe 17 hours yeah. every hour. That was quite difficult. But he got through it. He got through it. And That's it's amazing to see what people kind of get through. Yeah. It really, so, truly is. So the second time I cried on the Gobi Desert, um, it was uh, about 1 p.m. on the long day. Yeah. And, this, and, and it was, I mean, it was like 48 degrees Celsius. It was just baking. It was so hot outside your eyeballs hurt. Yeah. And... Uh, I see this Japanese woman and this Japanese guy, and I think they're a husband-wife couple, and the Japanese man is screaming at her. He's just, and I don't know what he says, can't speak Japanese, but he's, and he's just going at her, and just going at her, and just going at her, and she's going, no, just keeping her walking, no. And I realize, because Grace speaks a little bit, he's trying to get her to quit. Oh, sure. Because she is in her wood sandals. Oh, right. Because her feet aren't fitting. And they still have got 30 miles to go yeah. that day. 30 miles. Yeah. Right? It's, and it's not, and, and she won't quit. Yeah. And it was so beautiful that I just started crying. Yeah. <laughs> I just said, that's so beautiful. That was cute. And I'll be damned. Yeah. She finished. Yes. Right. I, 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 7 a.m. We got in at 4 a.m. And by the time I was kind of just kind of relaxing to kind of get to sleep, yeah. it was like 7-ish. I'll be damned. They came across the line, her and her, her and her wooden sandals. Yeah. And that's that aspect of human nature. That's part of why Brazilian jiu-jitsu is so fun too. Yeah. What do you think that that is about it? Do you think jiu-jitsu, do you think jiu-jitsu attracts people who are naturally predisposed to that? This, that ideal of seeking out, you know, so pain think, and grit and you know, resilience, I, or do you think it actually helps build that capacity in people too? Both. I think both. Mm. Um, I think one of the most important things for happiness, I gave this TED speech about this, um, mm. about why martial art, why I love martial arts so much. Mm -hmm. Martial arts makes you happy. Yeah. The community is a big deal. Yep. The community, being around people and communing with them in a way that isn't about money and isn't about power mm -hmm. and isn't about 
just how awful we can be to one another. Mm-hmm. It's just about, it's like a high-end form of salsa dancing. Sure. I think that is really, I think that's what we grew up, we, we, we evolved to do as animals. Like if you watch, I have three uh, English bulldogs. And when, and, and, and when you watch them play, they roll. Yeah. You know, they, the, the little one rolls to guard and is pushing off with his feet. Mm-hmm. And then, you know what I mean? And then the big one's trying to come in and bite him in the neck. I mean, they're not actually, they're just playing. Sure. I think we as, as a species were designed to roll around and wrestle. Yeah. I think we were just, we were built for that. Mm-hmm. We were built to run. We were built to wrestle. We were built to be active in a communal way. Do you think, think we're built for movement or do you think we're also built... Because one of the interesting things that you're seeing nowadays, obviously, is um, kind of like the rise of, you know, various symptoms like depression, you know, alienation, isolation. Obviously, a bunch of things like social media doesn't really help with that. But also the fact that we live at, in a time where things are way easier than they've ever been, right? And so coming back to this idea, do you think humans need to search out know, difficult challenges? Do you think that that, that is what kind do, of helped provide the meaning? It, do you think it, so, I mean, a really honest observation about myself. Mm. I have more of everything than I'll ever need. Yeah. And yet, I spend a significant portion of my day feeling desperate to make something happen. Yeah. I mean, how messed up is that? Well, I like, I have more of everything. I... I, my fridge is never empty. Yeah. I, n- I never don't have access to medical care. My right. daughter's never, my daughter doesn't never, never doesn't have access to education. Sure. Right. I don't worry about power or, or I don't have everything or clothing or shelter from the elements. I have everything. I have yeah. an excess of everything. Yeah. And yet because people, I think it deal, I think that the issue around that is as much as anything else is that as we aggregate into larger communities, it becomes harder to find significance. Yes. I mean, for me to be the best person in LA in jiu-jitsu mm. makes me one of the best in the entire planet. For me to be amazingly good at jiu-jitsu in Stanley, Idaho, mm. is relatively easy. Sure. So as our tribes get larger, yeah. we have a lot less significance because we're always comparing ourselves to one another. Yeah, if you look at the sort of evolutionary biology and you know, I guess the idea that we're social primates, we're evolved to basically... Uh, to be in basically small groups, tribes of up to 100, 150 people. Yeah. Anything beyond that is basically mm-hmm. something that's kind of beyond what our psychological limits are, are adapted to, right? Well, your and, leadership structures at that point start getting real weird. There's well, that, that 152 is And the then number. just the ability to kind of define, you know, what is your contribution to the tribe? What you, yeah. if you derive your own personal identity and meaning from your specific contribution within kind of like 100, 150 people, it can be quite clear, right? Larger than that, then it becomes, you know, much more difficult to really ascertain. I think that's what contributes to a lot of this. As you say, you know, we have everything and yet people still have that evolutionary fight or flight response. Yeah, exactly. You know, we are not uh, wanting for food and we're not under threat from predators. But at the same time, if you actually look at kind of what daily interactions are. cortisol levels, they don't yeah. seem to reflect that. Yeah, they just spike all the time. Yeah. Because I think we're adapted to essentially, you know, threat response. That's a, but so that's, evolution's a bitch. Yeah. Right? It's always yeah. pushing us to be more. Right? And, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's a, um, 
I think it's complicated. Well, I, I think it's interesting, like, coming back to your idea that you said about community, right? Because I think part of uh, what's interesting about your background, too, was you moved to Asia. Uh, you were a very successful investor. You're working with Tomasic. But you also were kind of a pioneer in kind of developing, you know, the idea behind mixed martial arts and jiu-jitsu by introducing, at least in Hong Kong, yeah. uh, Epic MMA, which is kind of like the first major, I guess, premium, um, how would you define it? Kind of yeah, no, no, I, look, I, I, I'm with you. I, that was the thought process. I mean, I definitely, um, I feel like I got a lot of, I, I still to this day feel like I have some unfinished business there. Sure. Um, what did you see the initial opportunity was there? And what was the market like? Everybody I in? know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, with the exception of one type of person, there's one type of per. There's actually two types of people that really just cannot benefit or enjoy jujitsu. The people that are just don't like are scared of anybody near them. Like, just don't get near me. Don't touch me. Don't hold me. Don't right. Phobes. Just that. If you have a lot of that, you can't do jujitsu. Just never going to work. And then the other ones are the ones, and these guys can sometimes work it out, but most often not. The ones that have an ego that's so big that they can't make themselves small to begin learning, right? So, so those are the two. Everyone else that I've ever seen that gets into jujitsu loves it, mm-hmm. and and I think that in the environment, I, I my feel is the environment in Singapore and and just the actually all over Asia, but but particularly in the more developed markets, Singapore, Malaysia, Shanghai, Beijing. Um, there was a, a, just a complete and utter absence yeah. of physicality in, their, in people's lives. They didn't really have a lot of sports that they did, maybe a little basketball. Sure. But, and, and so I really thought there was a great market mm. because martial arts has been in the blood out here for a very long time. Yeah. And um, my thought process around Epic was that... My thought process around Epic was launching a world-class gym with that kind of footfall. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most, that, that street we were on, where we were, has more traffic than any other place in the world on a daily basis. Absolutely true. And so with that kind of footfall, mm-hmm. a gym like that would transform a lot of lives, yeah. do a lot of good for the world, mm. and would be a lot of fun. Actually, put it, in, put it in context, because I guess people in Asia understand, like in Hong Kong, this is basically smack dab in the middle of the central business district Literally in the middle of central. Yeah. That would be equivalent. The, the most central place. The central. most central place in the most central central business district. That would be equivalent of what in New York or in London, for example. Oh, it would be like, it would be like in Times Square. Yeah. It would be like, you know, right on the corner of Times Square. Sure. It would be um, right in, the, I mean, I'm just trying to, I don't know London that well, but it would be. You'd you probably know, write right in the, in the heart Piccadilly of Piccadilly or... Yeah, Piccadilly. Yeah. It'd be right, it would be right at Piccadilly Square. Yeah. Or Piccadilly Circle. Yes. Is what it is. So, I mean, it would be right there. Yeah. On, on the corner there. Um, yeah, no, it was just... I mean, therein lies... I, I still, to this, to this day, I mean, you know, Epic had a very unfortunate ending and, and I, I wasn't there for the end of it. Um, my, my daughter needed a, a, a transplant uh, about a year into owning... About a year and a half into launching Epic. Mm-hmm. Um, but she got sick about a, even under a year of launching mm-hmm. Epic. And, um, so that, that required me to kind of make a, a graceful exit. Sure. But, um, that business model, uh, it, it had big potential. Um, I think the issue there 
And, and I think the thing that, that we should have done better, if you're going to go as big in the flagship as we did, mm-hmm. we needed to be ready to roll out six or seven more yeah. the next year. Because that flagship place mm-hmm. was never going to be super profitable. Yeah. Um, none of the flagship stores in any piece of real estate like that are. Sure. But it did a tremendous amount to build the brand mm-hmm. uh, for the gym, and it did a tremendous amount to build the sport in, the, in, in, in this part of the world. We did a tremendous amount, actually. Well, I, I know you have sort of mixed feelings about how, how it ended, but certainly from my perspective, like I know for a fact that it certainly changed a lot of people's lives as well. Yeah. Introducing jiu-jitsu to, you know, a whole community of people. Let's say we're in Hong Kong in particular, it would be kind of professionals, you yeah. know, people, as you say, who are lacking physicality and the benefits from it. And, you know, really opened the doors for, for them to actually kind of, you know, embrace something as at that time kind of esoteric as that well you know what if you um life is so i'm 43 years old and i'm continually enamored with how short life really is sure you got a lot if you're going to be an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. only do stuff that's cool yeah only i mean there's life is way too short to be like you know what do you do i sell m16s yeah or i sell grenades or I, I just, I'm a merchant of death. Yes. Life is too short and I, every business is difficult. Yes. So life is too short to not do things that make a huge impact. And, and I agree with you, by the way, every time I go to Hong Kong, I can't walk down the street at all without seeing lots of people mm-hmm. that are like, Cole, man, that place was, it, it changed my life and they're sure. training and that's cool. And I feel like that made a huge impact and I'm super proud of what was built there. Yeah. I would like to have, um, I would, yeah, I just would like to have seen it to its fruition and its potential. And that's okay. You know what, guys? Not everything works. Life but is certainly, I think you've, like, you're based in Singapore now, and I, I think you're probably seeing that potential being fulfilled by a number of different um, you know, companies and gyms out there. It yeah. seems like it really it's is It's going to be a off. big deal. No, I no, mean, no, the no. fact that you know, the UFC is opening a performance institute in Shanghai, one championship is doing the work that it's doing. There, it definitely, that you were early... Uh, and basically cottoned on to a trend that, that you're actually seeing really accelerate right now. Yeah, I think so too. I, that's one of the, the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is not seeing a really good value proposition. Mm. It's timing it correctly. Yeah. And I think we went really big. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What, what do they say? Uh, um, uh, restraint is the best part of valor. Right or or what, how does how does that quote go? It's not maybe if it's not restrained, it's the um, I have to go back and look, but it's it's it the ability to take a deep breath mm. and do things in a prudent way. Yes, is really important. I think we went too big with Epic right out of the gate. Sure, I think that was the fundamental issue. But look, it left an indelible mark yes. on on fitness and mixed martial arts in in Asia. Yeah, twenty years from now, people will still know who Epic was. I'm sure that's true. Right. So, so yeah, I think it was cool. Uh, yeah. I think it was cool. And I, and I don't regret anything that we did there. Yes. Um, I think it was cool. Well, and you've had a very interesting entrepreneurship journey as well. Because the next step, as you kind of alluded to earlier on, it was a lot more personal and kind of led to kind of what you're doing right now. Yeah. We're happy to speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I was in Epic uh, and uh, um, my daughter was 100 days old. And she, uh, uh, we were taking her in to do a, a checkup. And I was actually launching a hedge fund at the time uh, with another partner. And um, my, uh, I just come back from London. 
and uh, 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 yeah, this is this is just so gnarly. Um, and I take her in to do a, a, a checkup, this hundred day checkup, and the, the 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 pediatrician says, "Cole, she's jaundice and she shouldn't be jaundice." And I go, "Okay, you need to put her under the blue light again." Like, I didn't think anything of it. But I, I could, I just, my, my spider senses kind of said something. He's a little too serious about this. And he says, I want you to go to the hospital right now. Mm. And I want you to go to an ultrasound done. And so I go over there and I'm holding my daughter. And my daughter literally fit from, you know, the base of my wrist to my forearm, to, to my elbow. Sure. That's how small she was. And I'm holding her at the time. And the nurse is doing the, has the KY jelly over on her stomach. And they're doing the ultrasound with the wand. And she's cooing. And then all of a sudden, the nurse starts crying. And I'm like, oh, shit. Not a great sign. No. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she's just crying. And, and would, you know, she cleans up her hand, and I walk out of the room, and she just bursts into tears. And I'm like, oh, my God. So the next thing you know, I'm in this tiny room with no windows. I'm surrounded by surgeons. And uh, they tell me that uh, my daughter's liver's failing. And we need to immediately do this procedure. It's a huge operation called a Kasai operation. They basically cut the bottom... 20% of the liver mm. and they take a piece of her small intestine and they build a little trough mm. and the idea is maybe that will save the liver f to start draining bile. This is a huge deal. Yeah. And it has about less than a 0.1% success rate. Right. Meaning that it almost always fails. It just buys you a little time. Right. So for a liver transplant. Sure. Well, she's too young to have a liver transplant. Yeah. No one's ever had one at that age. And um, so I thought she was totally healthy. Mm-hmm. When I woke, when I came, when I, this, that morning. Yeah. And by lunch, I'm being told that her life has changed forever. Right. And so I'm asking the doctors, how many times have you done this? And the doctor says, I'm the head of the department. I'm good at my job. Mm, not say, quite the answer. What is this going to cost? And he says, uh, are you insured? I say, yeah. He says, don't worry. It's going to be really expensive. I'm like, Again, not exactly. I was looking for a little more feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I say, you know, um, what are the long-term consequences of this? And the guy looks at me and he says, you don't have a choice. We got to do it tomorrow. Like that is the ultimate in negative consumer experience. Yeah. Complete absence of empowerment. Complete. Uh, I felt so vulnerable. And then to add injury to insult. Um, so Grace, being the smarter of the two of us, called a... Uh, 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 gentleman that was one of the top pediatric cardiac surgeons in Singapore and he's a friend of ours we had for the Gobi Desert March mm. we'd raised a bunch of money from Tomasic and Medtronic mm -hmm. and we launched the first pediatric cardiac surgery unit in Vietnam ah, okay. and so we took a bunch of surgeons from Singapore up there to train the surgeons in uh, in uh, Vietnam mm -hmm. and uh, it was a huge we started this we started a, a process and an exchange and that it even goes on today and it's been hugely successful mm -hmm. in terms of like you know, now they they're, they're, they're now that center is a center in Vietnam where all the kids go. That then the outcomes are really good, and we're really proud of it. And yeah. So the gentleman, the doctor's name was Doctor Shanker, and we called him and said, "Hey, this is going on," and he said, "Okay, I'll be right over." Mm -hmm. He literally comes running over in scrubs, mm -hmm. and he puts his arms around us. The doctors in the room weren't real happy that he came. Mm. Put his arms around us and said, "Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you." Walks us out of the room. The door shuts. I'll never forget what he said. Cole. Don't let anybody in that room touch your daughter. Mm. They're really not qualified. Yeah. This is very, very, very precarious situation. Yeah. We got to do a global search and find the right people. Yeah. And so, and, and it turned out that, that 
we needed to do this procedure promptly, measured right. in weeks. We didn't have to do it measured in hours. Yeah, so they kind of gave you kind of oh, false straight sense up, of urgency. Straight up used car salesman. Mm. Got to do it now. Got to buy now, buy now, buy now, buy now. Right? I couldn't believe it. And I felt so horrified by that. And then, so long story short, um, we did this major search, uh, you know, Sloan, Sloan Kettering and Stanford and the Mayo Clinic and Boston Children's and UCSF and like all these places in the U.S. to try to figure out who the right teams were. Mm -hmm. And the chairman of surgery at Stanford said, actually, the highest volume guys in the world are in Japan for, for pediatric live liver transplants. Mm. They have a higher, a higher incidence of biliary atresia there. Mm. The procedure was invented there. I think that's where I'd go if it was me. Yeah. And you're already in that part of the world. Yeah. So we found... Dr. Shanker introduced me to the founder of the live liver transplant, the inventor of the procedure. And um, we flew to Kobe, Japan, and we did the first procedure. It failed, but it always fails, basically. Mm. And then about a month later, we did the transplant, and I was the donor. Yeah. So we flew the team in from Japan to Singapore to actually do the procedure. Yeah. Here's the nut of this, and this is why we started DocDoc. When this was all done, so the team that we brought in was head and shoulders above anybody else. Mm. You know, this guy literally written the textbook on pediatric live or on live liver transplants in Japanese. They translated it to English. It's the book they used everywhere. Sure. He was the highest volume. He stayed next to my daughter's bed for two weeks in the ICU. Yeah. He wouldn't let it. He wouldn't let a nurse, anybody give her any medication that he didn't first check. Mm. That's how that's, I mean, I felt like I was walking into a sword fight with Yoda. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, as my partner. Yeah. Like, I had the guy, thank God. Mm. And at the end of this, the total bill was 60% cheaper than what the team in Singapore or the other team had wanted. Really? It wasn't even close. Wow. And it was at that point that I realized that there's such an asymmetry of information yep. in healthcare that this is massively impacting everyone's life. Yeah. And so my wife and I decided to start DocDoc. And that's what we're, we're, you know, the world's first patient empowerment company. Right. And we partner with insurance companies to create this repository of medical information mm -hmm. and this discovery engine that matches patients and doctors yeah. um, based on the patient's unique needs and the doctor's unique expertise. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, every journey is a hard journey, Yeah. but I'm real proud of what we're doing in that space. We and legitimately are changing the world. I, I think it's incredible. I think that it seems, I mean, a lot of what you describe about that situation is kind of everyone's worst nightmare, the parents' <laughs> worst nightmare. Yeah. Right. And you know, uh, the aspect of having to make decision making under duress without any information without any information no. uh, I, it's incredible what you're doing with doc dog how many doctors are there now on the platform 23,000 23,000 that's pretty yeah. amazing it's where I mean look it's uh, building anything in, in, in healthcare is and dealing with insurance is nightmarish yeah um, and that's why you got to be proud of what you're doing mm. it's so important like it's so important to be doing things that you're proud of yeah. If you're not proud of the product you're selling, yes. Your life takes on a very cynical and nihilistic hue. Yes. And I, I just think that that's not worth any amount of money. I think what's interesting about Doc Doc too is this acknowledgement that uh, there are people who are, there are essentially there are levels to, to games, right? And there are people who are truly masters of what they do, right? Oh, and yeah. Just like jujitsu. Just like jujitsu. Right? Just like, I mean, so, okay. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. <laughs> so, um, uh, this is a good one. So, uh, I ponder this one a lot. So, do you know how Aristotle defines success? No. 
right, these are the exact, this is the exact definition. Operating in one's core competency in a life that affords one's scope. Mm-hmm. So if you, un- if you unpack that, operating in one's core competency. So for Mike Tyson, it was a left hook. In a life that affords one's scope. Because he could do that left hook so well, he could do anything else. He could drive any car he wanted. He could fly anywhere. He could travel anywhere. He could eat anything. He could meet anybody. Mm. Right? So if you do one thing really well with exceptional mastery and the world values that, mm-hmm. you're successful. And I think in the surgery world, just like in, 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 I mean, surgeons are athletes. Yeah. Right? They just operate at a very precise scale. Sure. So is there a difference between golfers? On the PGA, I mean, they're all PGA certified, quote unquote. Yeah. But of course, there's a difference. And if you're, you know, if it's your daughter, you want Tiger Woods in the tee box. Yeah. You don't want a PGA certified pro. Yeah. There's a difference, and that's what Doc Doc's about. Sure. But this this idea of identifying a master and being on the path of mastery. What do you think that? What do you think it takes to actually become uh, a master? in a particular field? The masters that... uh, Okay, so I've never done it, so I don't know, Mm. right? Because really, you know, those who know, those who know do and those that can't do teach. (laughs) So... um, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. No, true master. No, no, I've gotten good at things, but it's different. So being a scratch golfer is good at golf, right? Sure. Tiger Woods beats you by 10 strokes every time you play. Mm. So it depends on how you define mastery. Be- getting a black belt in jiu-jitsu, make, make, if you're a real black belt, mm. you're legitimately a tough human. Yeah. Right? You're legitimately good at jiu-jitsu. But you're not, I wouldn't call you a master. I mean, like, what does John Donahue say about black belts? It's, it's, that's the beginning. Yeah. That's the begin. That, that's where you basically are defined as a serious student. Yeah. I think that's probably about right. So... What I have found about guy, people that are, that are true masters, they're really good at keeping it simple. Mm-hmm. They just keep things real simple. Like in their jujitsu or, or in their painting or in their, in whatever they do well, mm-hmm. there's just a natural simplicity to it. And do you think that's because uh, uh, a recognition that what mastery is, is first a mastery of the fundamentals? So Bruce Lee said, that a punch begins as a punch mm-hmm. and then it becomes much more as a punch mm-hmm. only to end up being a punch. Yeah. Meaning that when any idiot can throw their fist in the air and think that's a punch. Yeah. And then once you start realizing how hard it is to actually punch, you, you find out that it's really difficult and you start thinking about how it, the fo- it starts in your ankle and then it moves up and it turns into your hip and the whole, you know, and you, you become almost pra- paralysis. You almost get into a state of paralysis about understanding how much there is. But it, when you practice, you get through that and then it turns into muscle memory again and you start throwing correct punches without thinking about them. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that. But I think that, at least in my own life, I look at my own jujitsu and its limitations. I think it's stymied, in fact, it's stymied by the fact that I complicate things. Mm. You know, I, I, I think that the people that are really good at jujitsu flow, and they flow because they feel, and I think I think a lot. Yeah. And I think thinking is the enemy of flow. Sure. 
in jujitsu in particular is a, is a is a good place for that to be relevant because it's a big complex game. I think what's interesting is uh, that if you actually, even by kind of the definition that you that you had, which I think is, yeah, you know, I think you could probably argue one way or the other. I, mean, I think a black belt relative to you know, the best black belt in the world is probably not a master. But black belt relative to 99% of the rest of the population of the world would certainly look like someone who has super mastered. Powers. Yes, yeah. basically, mastered something incredibly difficult. But I think what's interesting is even for the ones that, that you would, uh, you and I would clearly agree are true masters of what they are, at, that their art or whatever they happen to do, would not self-define themselves as masters. They would not even call themselves as masters. They would more, more often than yeah. not refer to themselves as a continuing student. And to me, that kind of feels like the important thing is not to achieve mastery, but just to be continue to be on that path of mastery and never. Yeah, come I think that's true for sure. I mean, the definition of stress is things aren't going the way you want them to, and a thing you can't control. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's being on that path of progressive achievement. I mean, um, I don't, you guys, you know, Tony Robbins. Yep. So I love Tony Robbins. I'm a total Tony Robbins buff. And I, and I get I get that he's cheesy. Have and you I unleashed get, your giant with oh, him? Oh, I've, I've done times. that. I've done that. Yeah, <laughs> I've listened to all his, not all, but I've listened to a whole bunch of his tapes. I've been listening to Tony Robbins for 20 years. Sure. And I think he's fantastic. And I think he's really right when he talks about growth. Mm. And, you know, you don't, if you, successful people, the one thing they all have in common is they're always growing. Yeah. And if you're... You, if you look at depression or you look at the majority or anxiety disorders or you look at a lot of people that just aren't really happy, mm-hmm. you can trace it back to they're not growing. Yeah. You know, as long as you're moving forward, it doesn't even matter if you're starting from a small base. As long as you're moving forward, tomorrow will be better than today. Mm-hmm. And, and, be, and, and that, we need that psychologically. And I think jujitsu helps with that. Yeah. You know, moving forward, even if it's slow, mm-hmm. matters. Yes. You know, I mean, I've trained jujitsu now since 1994 and I still don't have a black belt. Sure. Right? But I'm moving forward. Yeah. And so I'm not in a rush. And I love that fact. And I really am not in a rush. Yeah. You know, my biggest nightmare in jujitsu is that I get a black belt and I'm not really a black belt. Hmm. Like, I don't want to be an old man black belt that doesn't actually, if I, if I, you know, you know, as they say in the Middle East, inshallah. Yes. When I wear a black belt, I want it to matter. It's funny when I talk to other black belts is that... Um is that when they achieve being a black belt, it's, it's a little bit like a letdown because now they realize that there is no more belt progression. There's yeah. no, you know, fix like, oh, I know how well I'm doing because there's another stripe, <laughs> here's, a, here's another yeah, yeah, color, yeah. and now I'm just a black belt, right? Just like every other black belt out there. Now the challenge is actually what type of black belt am I going to be? The challenge now is not progression, but almost self-expression. Like, what is it that I'm going to be about? And that seems to be like, you know, kind of like the threshold moment where, you know, people start differentiating themselves a little bit. They're people who kind of stick with the games that they're, they're currently doing and, you know, they dominate in their gym or whatever it happens to be. And then there are others who just continue, as you say, pursuing growth and kind of really just continuing being a perpetual student. Yeah, I don't, I mean, um, I think jujitsu definitely gets more fun Yeah, the more you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a lot more fun being a black belt tapping out blue belts than it is being a blue belt getting tapped by black belts. Like sure. if I had to pick in that hierarchy, I think it's a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, 
a big part of jujitsu for me as I, uh, as I kind of move up is health. Yeah. It feels a lot more like I'm salsa dancing now yeah. than it does that I'm fighting. Sure. And I, and I think that's really nice, mm. particularly as I get older, it becomes about health and, yeah. and flexibility and, mm -hmm. and, and less about being alpha. Yes. And less about that. Um, uh, and a lot more about teaching. Yes. I, I love teaching. It's, I, I just love it. Yeah. And I find that when I'm in jujitsu, I'm always teaching. Sure. I mean, I'm rolling and learning, but then I'm teaching. Like, yeah. ah, you know, or I'm, or I'm problem solving with somebody. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Ah, you know, right there that, that you should have been here. Mm. You know, I, I find that I'm half the time when I'm rolling, I'm thinking about the other person's position relative to my position. Yeah. And noticing their mistake. Yeah. Um, as much as I am noticing how I capitalize on it. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, uh, at the end of the day, none of this matters. We're all dust. <laughs> like when it really comes <laughs> down to it. So I don't know if it really matters to be a world champion. Sure. But I think that it matters that you do your best. Yeah. And I think that it matters that you get a sense of, um, uh, that you feel good about yourself. Yeah. Uh, and good about your practice. I think that matters. I think self-esteem matters a lot and i think jujitsu helps with that yeah you become a much more gentle soul sure because you feel better about your place in the world yeah i mean just as a physical activity every all the benefits that come along with doing yeah. that too on a daily basis sure and but let's talk a little bit about parenting because i think that's one of the things that also changes significantly as people get older they yeah. become parents and that become you basically become kind of like a slightly different person or at least your perspective yeah shifts. do you have kids I have two. Yeah. Oh, okay. Eldest one also does jujitsu. Oh, seven how years old. Uh, turning seven. Okay. Gray white belt. Just about to transition to gray black belt. There you go. Very <laughs> cool. That's really very cool. No, I mean that it's one of the things I've found most interesting just about myself and just my relationship to jujitsu too, is just looking at uh, what an interesting vehicle this is for learning and for teaching and for instilling kind of certain things certain values, especially to kind of a young, formative mind, like a, like a child, actually. So Bushido, hmm. or Bushido, if I'm saying it correctly, uh, um, I think is a wonderful basic premise for living your life, and a basic worldview. Describe Bushido. Bushido, it's the, the Japanese is the way of the samurai. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, one part Zen, and about Zen simplicity, it's one part... Um, uh, well, I guess, okay, so the way of the samurai is about, there's a couple of different things. So there's a, a strong sense of um, letting go of all fear mm -hmm. because and that really stems from duty. Mm -hmm. So you have a duty to uphold uh, the honor of your master. You have a duty to defend the defenseless. Mm -hmm. and, and the only way you can really fulfill that duty is by letting go of your fear of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. You can't be a good sword fighter if you're worried about being cut. Yep. And so the, the first step of that is that daily contemplation of death mm. and the, to perceive yourself as already dead. Yeah. Because in that, only then can you really be brave. So that's, mm -hmm. that's one element of it, I think. Um, I think the other element of uh, the, the, the focus on simplicity mm -hmm. and elegance, you know, so... The, the Japanese tea ceremony is an example of it. Mm -hmm. Or the way in which they trained. I mean, they invented jujitsu. Yeah. The technical elements of jujitsu. I mean, that's 
you, you have a hard time getting away from the way of the samurai mm-hmm. uh, if you're studying jujitsu because a lot of this came from there. Yeah. I mean, a huge part of it, yeah. frankly. You know, it, we like to believe that the Brazilians invented jujitsu mm. or at least modern jujitsu. But if you go back and actually start looking at a lot of the, a lot of these moves, we've reinvented. Yeah. They've already kind of been there. Yeah. Uh, and if you talk to old school Brazilian guys, they'll be like, yeah, I know we were always doing De La Hiva. You just didn't call it De La Hiva. Mm. We were always, you know, half guard is, you know, yes, it wasn't quite the position that it is now, but, yeah. you know, it, it, it and, and that's just in our lifetimes. Yeah. And realize this stuff's a thousand, over a thousands of years old. Yeah. So when you really kind of dig into, into its original. Yeah, stuff roots, comes in with fads as well, right? Yeah. You know, even within kind of Japanese culture, they were fads around kind of newaza and kind of dropping it back off. So I would not be surprised that there's a kind of nothing new under the sun, really. I mean, or very little. Yeah. Very little. Yes. I've heard the electric chair was new. <laughs> you're not up to date on the nomenclature. I'm not, no, no so far not up to date. I don't know your date honey holes from your electric chairs, your emission <laughs> controls. You know, though. Crazy dog. So, yeah, recently I rolled with uh, someone who was really good with uh, legs. Yeah. Small guy. I was amazed at how he destroyed me. Sure. I was amazed at people that were really good at Barambolo yeah. and people that are really good at leg locks. Yeah. That game is a very, very different game. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I felt like, I really felt like rolling with him, I, was, I felt like a white belt. I'm like, wow. Like, I'm just not prepared. You know, I, I'm just not fundamentally prepared to deal with this. You've been ignoring 50% of the human body. That's true. For 20 years. Oh, yeah, I know. It's very true. But that's the beauty of it, right? So, I mean, there's so much more to learn. And, and um, yeah, to stay injury-free yes. and continue to train mm. is something that I want to do for a long time. Well, actually, let's, let's finish off on that topic. So, you know, I'm kind of enamored by this idea of, like, compound effects. Right? Yeah, I agree. And it's quite easy to understand, although it's hard to kind of... Uh, have the discipline to enforce, but, you know, people recognize that there are, you know, negative things that people do in their life, but have very small consequences in the short term, but they have compound effects that could mean the big difference in terms of your quality of life, you know, towards the end in 20 or 30 years, yeah. whether it's smoking or drinking, not getting enough sleep, carrying too much weight or fat or being, you know, unhealthy. So on the flip side, what, what do you, what are the kind of positive compound effects that you feel that you are kind of now putting in place for yourself, for your family, that you think will kind of enhance your quality of life as you go along? Um, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. Um, uh, my family values education. Mm. We're all, the whole family, we're all always reading books mm. and talking about the books that we're reading. There's a compounded, of, and and... Uh, I make a real effort with my daughter to try to make sure that she's integrating the knowledge that she's acquiring mm. into, into, into other topics. Yeah. So if we're going to study geology, we start talking about volcanology and how that plays into biology sure. and evolutionary biology because they all tie it, right? Everything's connected. Yeah. So I think there's a huge amount of value in, in, in making a real effort to learn yeah. and to really focus on learning. I think that's really an, actually a very important idea. Yeah, I mean, it falls on to your kind of like uh, identification of the growth mindset that comes, you know, and that's kind of distilled while you do jujitsu, that you embrace that kind of uh, mentality. The second thing is, I think it's really important to live beneath your means. Mm. I don't care how much money you have, live beneath it. Yeah. 
No matter how much money you make, spend less than what you make. Well, you build Save in that something. margin of safety, right? Just, it's just a, the more that you, the more you have, mm. I, I think the Stoics have got this right, where they talk about, you know, the more you get, the more you have, the more you need. Yeah. And it's, it's okay to have a lot, but it's not okay to need a lot. Yeah. You know, so with my daughter, I've got two basic ideas that I, so I, again, as you get older, one of the realizations I'm coming to is how little, how little time and how little, imp, how little room you really have to make a real impact in the yes. world. Right. If you do one thing and it makes a big impact, that's a lot. That's more than almost everybody in the world. Yeah. Right. Most people, when they die, their name and what they did in the earth very quickly vanishes. Sure. So. With my daughter, I've got two ideas that, I, I, that are more important than anything else that I want to instill in her. The first is self-esteem. Mm-hmm. It's very important to me that she feels good about herself. Mm-hmm. I will trade almost anything else I can give her mm-hmm. for self-esteem. Yeah. The second... But you is, think that's more important for girls than for boys? I only have a girl. Sure. But if I had a boy, I'd say the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think as a parent, I want my daughter or my son to feel good about themselves. Yeah. fundamentally good. Mm. And the second thing, which is related to the first, is I want to maximize self-esteem and I want to maximize adversity. Yeah. I want to watch my daughter hit the asphalt a bunch in front of me because mm. I know I can pick her up mm-hmm. because I won't always be there for her yeah. and I want to make sure she knows how to pick herself up. For mm. sure. And, and so those, you know, those two issues, I think jujitsu does a lot of that. Yes. Because you can't get good unless you get tapped a lot. If yes. you're worried about being tapped, then your, your ego is getting in the way of your growth. Yes. And so I do that with my daughter in all things in her life. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to give her. If I can just give her that, hmm. that's more important than everything else. She'll figure everything else out in her own way, in her own time. Hmm. I think for jujitsu for kids, I mean, I'm a huge pro- proponent of it, obviously. But for that specific point, I agree with you 100%. Because I think it's really interesting that you can essentially have this kind of controlled atmosphere, right? Where you can experiment with these ideas of resilience and adversity, but where the consequences are completely, you know, bounded, right? Yeah. And you kind of just, you can literally do it on a daily basis. And then they can kind of extrapolate from that, hopefully bring that out into other parts of their life. They can just learn by analogy. So I think it's super important. Cool. So... I think it was a great conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take care.